0: Brent and Chase Wilsey.
1: All righty. Welcome to the Smart Investing Show. I'm Chase Wilsey, and I'm going to be your host here for the next hour, getting you through for that unbiased, no-strings-attached, fundamental opinion about what you want to talk about. You want know, to join the show later. Phone number here is 833-288-0973. Again, that's 833 833- 288 and I got a special treat here today Brent as you can tell is not in studio so I have our
2: CFP Harrison Johnson here with us. Hey there, Harrison. How we doing? Hello, everybody. Usually you hear me calling in from all over the place, but now I am uh, back in the studio for the first <laughs> time in a while. <laughs> been a while since
1: you've been in the studio, so good to have you here. And, uh, you know, if you want to call in, most of the time, as people or listeners know, we t- break down those stocks. But hey, if you have more financial planning questions, maybe around taxes, estate planning, stuff like that. You can call in, and uh, Harrison is here to help address those. But, as always, if you want to call in about individual stocks, what's going on in the market, be sure to give us a call. As always, you know a lot going on in the stock market, the economy, a big news in the economy this week. A lot of different reports came out. We saw CPI, PPI. You know, the consumer price index, the producer price index, and then also retail sales came out. We also started earnings season, so I think this is going to be a really interesting next few weeks as you start to see more companies start to produce those earnings reports. We saw the big banks like Citibank, J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo. They all reported this past week, and and there was some. I'm going to say inklings of concerns to be there, but hey, there's always concerns out there in the economy. I did think a lot of the reports were actually quite strong, there was a, a lot of positive news that, that I thought the banks produced with how strong the consumer still is, and how strong businesses still are, and still the, the lack of leverage out there is one of the big things that I look at. But As always, we do have our topics we're, we're going to look at here. We're going to talk about inflation. We know we talked about the CPI, PPI. Let's take a closer look at those numbers here. And got to say here, another month, another extremely high inflation rate. The CPI came in this past week for the month of June at 9.1%, which topped the estimate of 8.8% and was the highest level since November 1981. Energy inflation was top of mind yet again as gas prices climbed close to 60% compared to one year ago, and even electricity prices grew 13.7% over the same time frame. Also, natural gas, well, that was up 38.4%. Food prices, another big part of our lives remained hot as they rose 10.4 percent over the last 12 months and you look at the shelter index that was up 5.6 percent which was the highest level since February 1991
2: One area that is seeing a reprieve from what I believe is a more difficult comparisons is car prices the cost for new vehicles was up 11.4 percent compared to last year and the used car and truck index was up 7.1 percent during that same time frame. Remember, remember. recently this was around 30%, so much higher. Um, with that said, I still believe inflation will be lighter as we exit the year, but all lighter means is not as high. Uh, we have started to see some reduction in commodity prices, which could help with the input costs for companies and could slow the CPI in the months ahead. Remember, it takes time for these various costs to work through supply chains and the overall economy.
1: And This is so important, too, because when you look at the, the CPI, you know, a lot of people talk about, oh, housing costs, and you're comparing against, you know, uh, people talk about inflation is much higher than it, it really was in the 70s because you're looking at different things. And and one thing is the housing prices, the way that's calculated, and we've talked about this a lot, but it's so important to understand, when housing prices were spiking and you were seeing, you know, gains of 17 18 20% in some markets for the housing prices year over year, that's not baked into CPI. The way CPI looks at it is it's actually a renter type rent excuse me an owner calculated rent so you're not looking at the home prices it's how much you could get for renting your home out essentially is how the CPI looks at it so rents weren't growing as fast during the last couple of years but I think that creates more of a long runway and now you're seeing this five six percent run rate on the shelter index which occupies about a third of the index overall I think that's one reason you're going to continue to see CPI remain quite high is I think people are going to need to continually increase rents unfortunately which sucks for renters but they were buying houses at these high prices to offset the cost of the prices up for the homes they were paying you got to increase rents and I think that's going to keep coming
2: yeah I mean rent always seems to lag a little bit behind property value so property value shot up over the last 24 36 months and now we're starting to see those rent prices come up so yeah
1: Yeah, so you got to watch that out for the the CPI. And and we talked about the PPI as well. And this is something that we always want to take a closer look at because this is what businesses are paying for their products. Again, the input costs. I I always tell people, companies are not just going to take prices and say, oh, well, you know, that sucks. I'll just eat that cost. They're (laughs) going to pass them on to the end consumer. So a lot of times the PPI is a good kind of leading indicator for what could be ahead for that CPI. But with that, the the numbers for the producer price index remained around historic levels. In the month of June, headline PPI was up 1.1% compared to the month of May, and increased 11.3% compared to last year. The recent all-time high was 11.6% in March. Of the month-over-month gain, almost 90% came from a 10% increase in final demand of energy. So this is something that's very huge.
2: One positive note was the core PPI, which excludes energy as well as food and trade services prices, was up 6.4% compared to last year. This was a deceleration from May's 6.8% gain and off the 7.1% gain we saw in March. Unfortunately, with these elevated prices, the higher costs will likely continue to be passed on to the end consumer.
1: And this is something, too. When you look at inflation, I hate to say it, but it is so energy-driven. Energy still runs our economy. You look at diesel prices. You look at gas prices. People are having to spend so much money on gas, it hurts other areas of the economy because they don't have as much discretionary income. But from the business side, everything has to be transported. If you're buying something overseas, well, it has to come across the ocean, maybe by plane, maybe by cargo ship. That takes fuel. We don't have those electric planes or electric ships just yet to transport that. Well, now that's a cost to those companies, so then they have to pass that on again to the consumer. This is one thing that I believe energy, if it can reduce itself here shortly, I think inflation is gonna be a lot less of a problem. But the problem is I, I don't know if energy demand is necessarily going to tail off just yet because all the money in the economy, which is why we continue to believe again that inflation is gonna remain high. But I was gonna say there are some positive notes here. When you're looking at the recent record, you're still seeing huge year over year gains. Don't get me wrong there, but things have pulled back from the highs. I mean this was as of the end of June. But you look at natural gas, that was off 65% from its recent high. Lumber, one thing we talk about is home prices. Lumber was off 60% from its recent high. Look at things like cotton down 54%. Wheat, 32%. Copper down 25%. Gas and diesel around 16 17%. So we have seen some things pulling back from their highs, which is one reason why I do think... If this was not the peak inflation rate that we're going to see, I think we are near that peak inflation rate, because I still believe as we exit 2022, you're going to see an inflation rate around 5%. That's my prediction, because I don't believe we're going to maintain as high of prices. I think we're going to start to see some of those come off those record levels. One other thing, too, that the inflation rate is really concerning investors is because of the Fed. In the Fed, they're worried about rising interest rates, they're worrying about what's known as quantitative tightening, where are letting bonds run off the balance sheet, and, and we're going to get more from the, the Fed meeting here shortly, but I I believe that they're taking too much focus on the short end of the stick. And What I mean by that is they're so worried about raising the Fed's funds rate rather than letting bonds expire. They built up this massive balance sheet, which is known as quantitative easing. And it did help stimulate demand during during COVID, so I, I think there was some positives that resulted from that. But now I think what they should be doing is they should just let these bonds expire. And currently what happens is as bonds mature, the Fed just reinvests those proceeds back into treasuries or mortgage securities. And what they're talking about is capping the monthly runoff at $47.5 billion, and that's going to last through about September. And this is actually occurring it's been occurring since june and that's 30 billion dollars for treasuries and 17.5 billion for mortgage-backed securities they're going to then increase that threshold to 95 billion dollars but the the issue i have here is if you have let's say 95 billion dollars i'm just gonna make my math easier 97.5 billion dollars worth of bonds expiring in the month of i'm just gonna say july you're still creating demand in that treasury mortgage-backed security market because you still need $50 billion worth of bonds to buy. My personal belief, I think they should just let that program expire, let these bonds run off, let the the market actually set the demand for what's going on in the treasuries and the mortgage-backed securities because right now we know that inflation is hot. I think interest rates need to find a market-driven level and it could cause a temporary spike in rates as it tries to find itself, but I think that's going to lead to a much healthier economy in the long term. I mean, We'll see what happens. I'm not chairman of the Fed or anything, but <laughs> that's what I'd be looking at here. I'd be less worried about raising those short-term rates, because now we're talking about maybe a 100 basis point increase, and what that's doing is it's really creating more demand on the the short end of the stick. That's why you're seeing the two-year Treasury spike and the 10 years actually not doing quite as well, and we have that inversion, the yield curve. I'd like to see just less, I don't want to call it manipulation, but less demand from the Fed and, and those treasury markets. With that, we kind of talk about the the recession. I mean, we, we know a lot of people are concerned about recession happening. And, you know, there is, I think, some accuracy in those concerns. And to be honest, we'll, we'll get some more revelations here because the GDP report does come out July 28th. And if we have a negative number, that's the technical definition of a recession is we'd have two consecutive quarters of declining GDP, but I continue to believe this is an inflation driven recession where it's just that output from GDP is not keeping up with inflation because we're not having real growth, but I don't think it's going to be that big of a problem. And I honestly think that this could be the best recession we may have seen in our lifetime. There's not enough room to really talk about here, not enough time to really talk about here. All the reasons of why I believe it's gonna be the best recession we've seen but let's take a look at a couple number one inventory levels at many companies still remain low I mean we talked a lot about the car manufacturers so and so forth last week or two weeks ago where you drive by these auto dealers and there's not like we have a huge surplus of cars on those lots I mean that's a big positive one area that you have seen a little bit more excess inventory is retail but I don't think retail inventory is going to take down the economy by any means. You also do look at profit margins. Well, for companies, that's high, around 18%. For reference, profit margins heading into recessions in 1991 and 2001, well, they fell to a single digit. So, we still have a lot of room for these companies to remain profitable. That's a huge buffer that we're looking at, about an 18% profit margin. Businesses are also sitting on a record $4 trillion in cash. Jamie Dimon, just this last week during the earnings call, said companies' credit has never been better. Companies are in a fantastic spot, and again, I talked about that leverage earlier, about how the consumer and the businesses, they're not over leveraged at this time, and look at all that cash. Again, $4 trillion for companies, and households still have $18.5 trillion in checking accounts, saving accounts, and money market mutual funds, which is about $5 trillion higher than before the pandemic.
2: The job market is still very strong, and in the 12 recessions since World War II, that has never been the case. And I forgot to mention, in the second quarter, many commodities like soybeans, wheat, and corn have dropped double digits. You may hear the media and other worrywarts screaming the sky is falling like Chicken Little, but I believe this will not even feel like a recession. Let's see where we are in December 31st, 2022, but in the meantime, I'll keep my eye on the important data, not the media hype.
1: Yeah, and I think this is just something people are looking at, and it is concerning. Of course, you're going to have issues in an economy. An economy is not always going to be perfect, and we are going to have recessions. We are going to have rising interest rates. We are going to have inflation. Now, sometimes it does get out of control, like we are seeing high inflation rates, but you look at the overall picture. I'm not saying we're having a booming economy by any means, but we're not going to have a 2008-2009. We're not going to have a Great Depression of 1929. We're nowhere near those levels. And I think if you start to look at the numbers behind the equation, and I think a lot of times the problem is people make it so political. And whether you're Republican or Democrat, if your party's not in office, you just hate the economy just because you don't want that person to succeed. And I think a lot of people know where I lean here, but (laughs) the issue is the economy is not as bad as people are making it out to be. And again, I want to be very clear, not great, but it's not crisis level. We're not in a leverage situation like 2008, 2009, where the companies are going to collapse, where the real estate market is just going to collapse. There's just too much cash out there and not enough leverage. With that, I did want to talk quickly about the housing market as well, because this is another issue that people are looking at, because historically, slowdowns in new home home construction have been a leading indicator for prior recessions. In the month of May, we did see new home construction drop about 14% from a month earlier. But before you hit the panic button, it's important to look at the lessons home builders have learned from the housing crisis in 2007.
2: Yeah, during that time frame, they drastically overbuilt, which has definitely not happened in this case. Um and in fact, in the first quarter, total U.S. spending on home building was 22% below the pace of building at the peak of the early 2000s. I believe we have an expensing housing market set for a pullback, but by no means do I believe we have a housing crisis that led to the Great Recession in 2008 and 2009. I mean, it's just a, a totally different environment out there. People have a lot more equity in their homes compared to what the um, 2008 Problem looked like. Also, we've got a whole lot more buyers in the market. You know, for single single single-family homes, it used to be just individuals buying those, but now we have a lot more investors. We have companies buying them. We have hedge funds, private equity funds. So all these other people are have been increasing the demand and accumulation with the low interest rates. So um, it's just a totally different different space that we're seeing compared to uh, uh, 15 years ago.
1: Yeah, and it's again the thing that worries me is when we have excessive leverage and i think i talked about this last week but one of the only places i think that we've really seen excessive leverage has been in cryptocurrency (laughs) 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 we know how that's kind of worked out for a lot of those cryptos is bitcoin still around twenty thousand? and a lot of those have just fallen off a cliff and we've seen a couple of the uh, like three arrows capital they've filed for bankruptcy there's a couple other of the I'm going to call them custodians that have filed for bankruptcy, So, our lenders that have filed for bankruptcy. So that's what really concerns me And is the leverage. And I think with all this equity that people have built up, you're not going to see foreclosures because if the price declines and people can't afford that home, it sucks that, yeah, you're not selling at the peak anymore, but you still have, let's say, $200,000 in equity. You can sell that home. You're not underwater. I, I don't think we're going to have a huge problem, again, just because of all that equity.
2: Yeah, I mean... Back at that time, people were getting negative amortization loans. They were buying multiple properties with variable rate mortgages. Um, They were qualifying with nothing down. So you're right; it was much more of a leverage problem. And you know, there's just too much equity out there in the real estate market um, for for something like that.
1: uh, Talking a little bit about the real estate market, I did want to talk about mortgage rates real quick because people have been worrying about the increase in mortgage rates. But historically, they are not out of control by any means. In fact, if you go back to 1971, the long-term average for 30-year mortgage rates is just under 8%. And the record high that came about in 1981, well, (laughs) 16.64%. Nowhere near those levels. At around, I'm going to call it 6%. I I believe it's dipped lately to around 5.5%, but still many people are probably playing close to 6%. I'd say we now have a more normalized interest rate environment. And the days of getting under a 3% mortgage, I believe are in the past. I don't think we're going to see sub 3% perhaps for decades. I, I just
2: don't think we're going to get back to those levels. I mean, the, those low interest rates were artificial by the things that the Fed were doing. So, I think you're right. It's going to be a long time, if ever, that we see those again. But, as you mentioned, higher interest rates aren't necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, it's it's nice to be able to buy a house for a, a 2% mortgage. Um, but with the higher interest rates, you know, that interest is deductible if you itemize on your taxes. So, even if it is six percent seven percent well that's a deduction on the federal and state side you can write that off um so that the after tax interest rate still might only be four something in the four percent which is which is very doable especially if you buy a house at a good time and you still get that growth there
1: yeah no great points there and and, you know one thing i was thinking about on on the drive here today was i was thinking about just talking to people and obviously a lot of people are, are concerned about where stocks are, where their portfolio's at, and so forth, then I always tell people, we're we're not worried about the companies we own in the portfolio. We know where they're at. And I mean, there's still issues that people have with the volatility and so forth. And it it just doesn't drive me crazy, but I always look at it a different way. When when people are worried about reductions in the stock prices, I always kind of look at it this way. I say, let's say you bought a stock at $10 a share. Well, seven years later, you sell it at $20 a share. Well, it doesn't sound that great, but that's a 100% gain. That's a pretty realistic return. After that seven year period you don't look back over time and be like well after a year gosh it was at eight and then oh after two years it was at 12 and then it fell back down to 11 and then went up to 15 and then back down no you, you look at you bought it at 10 and you sold it at 20. but all this volatility it just worries people and, and this is again where you have to look at understanding what you own and you can't get sucked into the stock market volatility and don't get me wrong I think there's a lot of things out there that you shouldn't play what I call the, the pray and hope game, where hopefully it comes back, but with good companies with strong valuations, there's no reason to panic about the stock market volatility.
2: Yeah, volatility is the nature of buying companies. It's always going to go up and it's going to go down and it's going to go up again, but you're right, as long as you're buying the right things, that's that's really what you focus on in the long term. It works itself out.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, with that, I do see Ken and Jim ha- have been uh, waiting patiently here, so uh, we're going to, again, open up the phone lines. If you do want to call in, again, that phone number is 833 833- two eight eight zero nine seven three. Again that's eight three three two eight eight zero nine seven three. And I did want to mention real quick is if you did find that kind of first part of the show informative, interesting, that is part of what we call our smart investing newsletter. We do our financial posts with these topics all week on social media. But if you want to get that newsletter, there are more topics that we don't have time to cover here. You can go to our website, smartinvesting2000.com. Again, that's smartinvesting2000.com. But with that said, let's head to San Diego and let's speak with Ken. Hey there, Ken. You're on the Smart Investing Show. How can I help you this morning? Ken, you there? All righty. Well, it looks like Ken may have stepped away from the phone. So with that, let's go out to Alpine. Let's speak with Jim. Jim, you're on the Smart Investing Show. How can I help you?
0: Chase, you've been a great help already with that uh, monologue. about uh, How really good and how liquid the uh, whole time is. How underleverage. It. It's very reassuring, especially in this great buying environment.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Mark. So I called you a couple oh, months ago, so, two months ago, about that health industry. I'm just curious if you have any news or information or thoughts about why the stock keeps going down. Okay, it's becoming quote, better and better buy, but you know, I got to figure out trying to figure out what's going on behind the scenes without reading the news and everything.
1: Of course, of course. Yeah, So let's take a look again at Omega he- Healthcare Investors. That ticker symbol here is OHI. And, and there are REIT, which is, again, a real estate investment trust in the healthcare facility uh, space. So I, I'm guessing here that they probably own some acute care centers, um, maybe some hospitals and, and things of that nature. But, but big thing here, short percentage of float, 12.1%, a lot of short here on this stock. Now, that could be one thing that's pushing the stock lower, but- on the flip side of that, if things can start to turn around, those shorts could become uncovered, and those people have to then buy the stock back, which could actually lead to a short squeeze, saying the stock higher quite quickly. So that, in my opinion, could create a good opportunity with a good company. Looking at institutional ownership, well, that's 68.5% here. Valuation ratios, price to earnings 16.4% when the industry is 285 price to sales at 72 slightly above the industry at 54 Price to book at 1.8, eh, industry to average 1.6, not going to fret about that that ratio there. Price to cash flow 11, much better than the industry average, is 17.2 as well. Now, looking at growth rates, earnings over the last one year, well, they're up 103.3%, while the industry is up 10.6%. Many times in real estate, I, that could come from selling a building or selling a property. So, would want to understand how the earnings grew so quickly. But as I said many times, that's going to be my my estimation of why that occurred. Sales over the last one year, well, hey, that grew 13.6%. Industry was up 14.8%. So, uh, pretty good growth rates for this business. Five-year, though, estimated earnings per share growth, that's a negative 2.7%. Looking at the dividend, wow, 8.8% dividend yield. That is definitely a juicy one there. Payout ratio, 144.1%. Now, that is concerning on the earnings front, but again, one thing we always talk about with the real estate investment trust is you got to look at what we call the FFO. That's the funds from operations or the cash flow of a company because there is so much depreciation that can occur with these real estate properties that the earnings are not necessarily as good of a gauge perhaps as how strong the company could be. Now, looking at the balance sheet, current ratio, well, very strong there, plenty of liquidity 2.8. Debt-to-equity at 1.4, 140%, is above the industry average of 100%. But many times with this, we know that companies, the real estate, depreciate their real estate over time. So, the debt-to-equity may be more favorable than, than you think because they're carrying the book value of the real estate, not necessarily the market value many times, which could undercut how strong the balance sheet is for these businesses. Now looking at the uh, net margin, 43%, very strong compared to the industry average of in 19.7%, and then the return on equity, 11.4, and return on invested capital, 7.1. I do see the current price here for OHI, $30.40, 52-week high well, $37.96, and the 52-week low well, that's $24.81. See, year-to-date, stock's up about 8%, so it has been falling from the recent high, but definitely held up much better so far this year than the S&P 500 index, which is down about 18%. Now if we go forward and we look at the estimated earnings here for the company, I do see that they're estimated at $1.49. That would give us a target sell price here of $24.73. Let's see, and I said the current price was again thirty dollars and forty cents. Excuse me, Jim. That was actually the earnings for the company, not the uh, FFO. I have to pull up my I have to pull up my other uh, resource here to pull that up. The the one I had pulled up only pulls up earnings, unfortunately. So I thought I was gonna. Let's see, just pull that up here. So, OHI, looking at the earnings going forward, and and kind of while I'm pulling this up, one thing that I have noticed with the healthcare space is there is a lot of other concerns. I've seen a couple short reports of other healthcare companies, uh, healthcare facility companies, I should say, that have sent other stocks in the space lower. Uh, Just people have kind of pointed out to the margins these hospital operators operate with. That has caused shorts on, I know, another stock in particular. Uh, we actually own it in the portfolio. So I, I'm not going to give the name of that one, but people can probably do the research and find out. But I know that that's kind of created some duration in, in this industry in particular. So I think that the shorts from other places have kind of carried over into OHI. That is my estimation of why this stock has fallen from the highs. But I, I think a lot of the, the short data that, that this firm has presented in my opinion, is not really too concerning. I, I think that they're missing a lot of a data that that I think is just inaccurate. And if you listen to the companies talk about it, I think there's a lot of positive things going on with the, the space and this type of real estate I think is a very safe type of real estate. I don't think we're going to have hospitals go anywhere. So I like this space. I think it's just kind of under scrutiny right now, which has sent the the space lower in terms of their stock prices. With that, I did pull up the FFO as well for OHI. As I said, we'll go out to December 2023. I do see the estimated FFOs, $3.03. We use our 16.6 multiple for that. We get a target sell price of now $50.30. So that, that does illustrate the big difference, again, between earnings and FFO and why we, we do look at the FFO for these real estate companies.
0: Yeah, you mentioned uh, the margins are pretty tight, but it didn't sound like it when were reading numbers.
1: Yeah and it, and that's one thing it, it's not the it's not the margins for the hospital real estate owners it's for the hospital operators so the operators the ones obviously paying their landlords or the real estate owners the 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 short report actually came out and said oh well this is going to be problematic cuz they're not going to be able to afford higher rents and and so forth but when i looked at the data from a lot of the operators it wasn't it's not great by any means but it it wasn't Terrifying, like oh my gosh, they're going to fold, go under, and not going to be able to afford that real estate.
0: Yeah, and uh, it's being a REIT, I mean, at least in the real estate REIT, my understanding is they have a mandatory ninety percent payout from mm-hmm. yeah. uh, earnings. Is that the same with this healthcare REIT? You think?
1: Yeah, so that they do still have to pass on those those earnings to the shareholders. So that, that's why you see such a, a great dividend yield and. You know, you, you see great dividends many times with the, the real estate investment trust companies.
0: Yeah, and with the payout uh, the there was 140.
1: Yeah, and and again, that's on the earnings, not the FFO or the cash flow. So it it looks very very high, but I would obviously recommend doing more research to make sure it is sustainable. But just based off the the difference between the earnings and the FFO, I would guess their cash flow can more than cover that dividend. But you you do just want to ensure that
0: yeah okay well that's uh, i mean the ffo you know the the ratio of ffo is probably down below 100 so percent that's uh, actually quite a bit below 100.
1: yeah yeah so well i hope that helps you there jim
0: well i'm not going to worry in fact i think i might just pick up a little bit more
1: yeah, make sure you're not over-concentrated there, but I mean, from what I've seen, the numbers look good. I I think the, the story's good for that space. I would want to understand, again, more of what health care facilities they own and where they're at, but I, I think it, it could be a good potential to add to.
0: Well, I'm getting older, and I may become a know person. All
1: right, we'll, we'll see what happens.
0: All right, well, thanks a lot. Again, as always, it's very informative and tremendous service.
1: All right, well, thanks for calling, Jim, and thanks for being there. All right, righty. Well, that does open another phone line. Phone number here again: eight three three two eight eight zero nine seven three. Again, that's eight three three two eight eight zero nine seven three. And I see we have Ken back, so uh, let's try this again. Let's go out to San Diego and speak with Ken. Ken, you're on the Smart Investing Show. How can we help you?
3: Hi, guys. I was uh, calling about uh, Chase, J.P. Morgan Chase, and see what you guys thought about the stock.
1: Of course, yeah, and, and J.P. Morgan Chase did just report this past week, uh, so we, we might not have complete up to date numbers, obviously, since the reports aren't done. But more than happy to kind of go through it. May want to call back in a, a week or two as well to see if there is any changes to the numbers. Nice thing is not like year end where it's going to drastically change it, but there could be some changes to, to analyst estimates and so forth. But uh, let's take a look again at J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, very large bank. We, we definitely know about them. They're in the industry of obviously banks. Short percentage of float here, not very high at 0.6%. I see institutional ownership at 71%. Now, turning to the valuations, very attractive for the bank at this time. Price to earnings, and again, this is the pre report from, uh, let's see, I think they reported Thursday, but price to earnings was 9.1. Industry was at 6.5, but gosh, under 10, that's an extremely intriguing valuation. Price to sales at 2.8 is also above the industry average 2.0. I see price to tangible book value at 1.7, industry average of 3.2. I like that ratio there. Price to cash flow 4.2, above the industry average 2.6. It is somewhat expensive compared to the industry, but overall valuations I would say do look good for JPMorgan Chase. Looking at the PEG ratio, which is the PE divided by growth, that's also very attractive at 1.8. Now looking at the growth rates, earnings did fall ten percent over the last year, while the industry was down just one point one percent. One thing that you had to be cognizant of is in the last two quarters is now JP Morgan Chase has actually added what we call like credit reserves, which is actually an earning hit but it's not like you pay for them necessarily. It's not cash flow that's going out of your pocket. It's just an accounting measure that these banks have to take if they're concerned about perhaps some risks down the line. We saw big earnings hits during COVID for these banks where they had to reserve a lot of that credit, essentially. Now they're they're reserving some more, but not nearly what we saw during COVID, obviously. So that has been something that's impacted the earnings thus far for many banks uh, in 2022, something that you would want to understand a little bit more before investing in this company. Another thing, too, you talk about sales down 0.6%, while the industry was up 4.5%. Looking at the five-year estimated growth rate, well, that's 5.4% versus the industry growing at 2.8%. percent i got to say, I love Jamie Dimon. I think he does a great job running the bank. On his recent conference call, he was talking about uh, the analysts are like, oh, well, you know, aren't you worried about the short term? You haven't pulled back any expenses? And he's like, no, we're not managing this business for, oh my gosh, we're gonna have a potential recession. He said, no, we're managing this business because we know the economy is going to grow over the next 10, fifteen, 20 years. That's why we're continuing to invest during these downturns. and I, I think that's why JP Morgan Chase, will continue to be a very successful bank in the long term. It's because, again, like us, we don't worry about the volatility. Jamie Dimon doesn't worry about the volatility of the stock price, of the economy. He's going to run the business for the long term, which is, I think, why I see a good growth right here, and why I think JP Morgan is going to continue to do quite well. Now talking about the dividend, with the the stock price pulling back here, you get a very nice dividend, of 3.5%, and the company only uses 29% of their earnings to pay that out. They have been buying back a lot of stock. I know that will cease due to the CCAR, the stress test, but in the past they did buy back about 4.8% of the shares outstanding there. That was their buyback yield. We look at the the balance sheet, no current ratio. That's because they are a financial company. Debt to equity at 120% is favorable compared to the industry, 160%. But again, the accounting is different for financial companies. As you know, many times assets are liabilities and loans are actually assets is what i meant by that the net margin is 35.2 percent industry is 30.9 percent return on equity stands at 14.2 while the industry is at 11.2 and return on invested capital at 7.3 percent now looking at the current price for jp morgan chase is $112.95 Wow, well off the fifty-two week high of one hundred seventy-two dollars and ninety-six cents, and the fifty-two week low one hundred six dollars and six cents. Year to date, the stock has definitely struggled, as down about twenty-seven percent. Now we'll go out to let's see, two thousand and twenty-three, and we see that the estimated earnings per share here. Well, that's twelve dollars and sixty-eight cents. That would give us a target sell price of $210.49. So, I mean, I got to say here, Ken, I like the financial industry. They've been beaten up because of the concerns over recession. But as as we kind of talked about at the beginning of this show, I think the concerns of recession have gone too far. I don't think we're going to have this deep, long recession. I think it's going to be a short, mild recession is what I'm looking for. And I think if the recession fears do... Come true, and in my opinion, that they're not going to be as bad. I think the banks can recover quite nicely because the recession fares will will abate, and the the companies can then take those credit reserves off the balance sheet, which now pops back on as earnings. I, I think now's a great time to be looking at, at banks like JPMorgan Chase.
3: Okay, yeah, that's what I um, that's what I'd hope. It, after they announced uh, their missed earnings on Thursday, the stock went down all the way to one hundred six. Mm-hmm and now it's popped back up just in one day. But uh, yeah, it, it looks attractive and everything you've said seems pretty positive And especially about Jamie Dimon as a CEO, he seems to be pretty conservative as yep. far as running the company and also realistic on things. He's not trying to sugarcoat things. And he did put almost half a billion dollars in reserve for possible default loans. Yep. Um, he's. Just not hiding anything. So that's why it just seems so attractive, especially with interest rates on the way up.
1: Yeah, and they go up. Exactly. And, and that's kind of what I was talking about too with that, that credit reserve there that, that he did. I think many times JP Morgan is more conservative than they need to be with that, which, as I said, it, it doesn't impact the business necessarily in terms of their long term earnings capacity, but in the short term, it causes them to miss earnings like they did this past week because they had to put that. On the the income statement as as a loss, it's, it's an expense. Well, it's not a real expense to the company. It's just an accounting method that they have to go through. And it, I think, as you said, they, they are overly conservative, which I, I'm okay with because it doesn't jeopardize the long term impact of, for the company.
3: Right. So, what do you, would you be a buyer at, say, a hundred or 105?
1: You know, kind of as I was talking about there, too, where I was saying you look seven years down the road with a company like this, I, I mean, I like J.P. Morgan Chase at these levels. I got to tell you here, you obviously got to do a little more research on it. it sounds like you, you did dig through the conference call and the, the earnings report and so forth, but I, I like J.P. Morgan Chase at these levels. I, I wouldn't be trying to play this game of, oh, is it going to dip back down to 100? I look again, where is it going to be two, three, four years down the road? I think it's going to be quite favorable for investors in um, the right financial companies.
3: Okay, great appreciate the information and your thoughts
1: on it. No worries, Ken. Thanks for calling.
0: All right.
1: All righty. Well, I do see we have Al and Stan waiting there patiently. Hold with me here. As I said, I do have our financial planner, Harrison Johnson, here with me, and uh, about that time for financial planning, so I, I did want to turn it over to Harrison here and, and see what we're talking about. I think a topic for today is tax loss harvesting.
2: Tax loss harvesting, yes, sir. So, tax loss harvesting is a process of selling a position that's in a taxable account at a loss, so you can use that loss as a deduction to offset the income from other capital gains or even ordinary income. Um, one thing that's kind of cool about this is, if you have uh, you know, long-term gains are taxed at a lower rate than short-term gains, but you can use long-term losses to offset short-term gains as long as there's no other long-term uh, gains to offset. Um, if there are no capital gains to offset when you realize a loss, then that capital loss can be used to offset uh, other income, such as wages we're limited on how much we can do per year. It's $3,000 per year. It can be used as a deduction, and then the rest of that carries forward to future years. And with tax loss harvesting, we always have to watch out for a wash sale. So if you recognize a loss and you sell a position, you're not allowed to buy that same or an identical position um, 30 days before or after that sale. If you do, the loss is negated. You don't get to... um, Realize it. So this prevents people from selling a position that's down and then immediately buying it back just to just to lock in that loss and then and then use it to deduct. So on the surface, tax loss harvesting seems like a no-brainer. You know, you just get a, a, a tax deduction essentially. But there are some caveats to it, and that's the main reason I, why I wanted to talk about this. So. Um, one risk of tax loss harvesting is you're essentially selling low, which, you know, if you're an investor, you want to buy low, sell high. But in this case, you buy something that goes down, you're selling low. And it's possible that, you know, you're selling to get the deduction, but while you're waiting to then rebuy that company, again, you have to wait 30 days, it's very possible that that position goes up. And then the gain that you missed is more than the tax savings that you got from the loss to begin with. So for example, if we uh, use an example here, let's say you have a position, there's $100,000 in it, and it drops 10%. So now you're at $90,000 and you want to do some tax, uh, tax loss harvesting. So you realize this loss of $10,000. So your capital gain tax rate is 15%. So that saves you $1,500 in taxes. However, all it would take for that initial investment of now ninety thousand dollars, it only takes a gain of one point six seven percent to recoup that entire fifteen hundred dollar tax savings loss. Which one point six seven percent? I mean, that can happen in a day. It happened yesterday. <laughs> so, you know, you have to be you have to be careful about that. Also, um, let's see.
1: And while you're looking there too, I was going to say. I mean, we've, I've seen this happen so many times where people are so fixated on the taxes or. I don't mean to knock them, but I'm gonna knock them. A lot of CPAs, are like, oh, I'll just take the loss, and they don't think about the investment part coming back. And I'm gonna say, too, right now, in a situation like we're at, I still think we're gonna have a good end to the year in the market here, and in, in the right stocks, I should say, not the whole market. I think there's still some issues in the market, but I think the right companies can rally into the end of the year. You take that tax loss. Also now you're playing this guessing game of what's going to happen in the next 30 days and
2: people know we're not short-term traders nobody knows what's going to happen in the next 30 days it could pop very easily Exactly you mentioned the right company and that's that's exactly it because you can't buy that same company back within 30 days but you could buy a different company back but the thing is if you bought a company and then it goes down well you should be more excited about that company now because if you were excited about it at that first level you know now it's down now it's an even better buy so you really don't want to get into the practice of trying to tax loss just purely for the deduction when in in many cases you should be buying more that company and there's a way that you can do that so sometimes what we look at is instead of just selling a company and then trying to buy it back in 30 days we'll start off with doubling that position so buying it and doubling it and then waiting 30 days and then if it still makes sense to tax loss harvest then you can sell the initial lot that you have claim that loss or if the position goes up well that's great you doubled your position when things were low and then you got the benefit of the gain that's going to come out of that
1: yeah it it really i always tell people i like to have options mm-hmm. that creates i think much better options for you As i said you're not trying to play this guessing game of what's going to happen in 30 days you look at saying hey i i know this is a great business I would never recommend doing the strategy with a terrible business. <laughs> if you have a terrible yeah. business, cut it lose, take the tax loss. Yeah, that, that's a good idea. But if you have a good business that is down temporarily in your belief, yeah, that's a great way to do it because you buy it and 30 days later, you have that option then to say, well, do I want to take the tax loss or is this a great business I should continue to hold? The one thing I will say is you want to make sure it's not over-concentrated in your portfolio because you double that position all of a sudden, it could be 12% of the portfolio, let's say, then the stock goes up. Now it's a huge part of the portfolio. Mm -hmm. That's something you have to be
2: cognizant of as well when, when you're implementing a strategy like this. Yeah. One last thing I want to mention on this is, when you're engaging in tax loss harvesting, this isn't a permanent deduction that you're getting. Really, what you're doing is you're just extending that gain to be realized again at a future date. So if you sell a company and then buy it back after the 30 days, what you've done is you've now locked in a much lower cost basis. So if it does come back and then continue to grow, now all of that loss that you've captured is just going to be recaptured as a capital gain in the future. So one thing that you'll have to look at is what is your tax bracket now and then how is that going to change going forward? Because it's very possible that you could engage in tax loss harvesting maybe when you're in a 0% capital gain tax rate if your taxable income is low enough. which. If you're a married couple, that's around $83,000 of taxable income, which means your AGI can be close to $110,000. And at that level, you don't pay any taxes on capital gains. So why would you want to lock in a loss only to have a larger gain in the future, which maybe in the future you will be in the 15% bracket or the 20% bracket? So you you also have to look at what is the real tax benefit of doing this to, to see if it's something Worthwhile,
1: yeah, and it's what it always comes down to when we talk about financial planning. It's about understanding the big picture, and that's what you do a great job of for your clients. I think that's why you become very popular in the office, is is people appreciate you breaking down the whole story. And a lot of times, people are just so fixated on one concept that they they miss so many other ideas that actually end up costing them in the long term.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's that's what financial planning is, the big picture, for sure.
1: Yeah. And, and you want to have a conversation with Harrison. The, the first meeting with Harrison is free. You can learn more about what financial planning is. I'm going to say true financial planning is you, you get this concept of financial planning, a lot of different financial planners. It, its I'm going to tell you, not what Harrison does. Uh, you want to learn what, how he helps his clients. You can go to our website, smartinvesting2000.com. Again, that's smartinvesting2000.com. Or give him a call at the office at 858-546-4306. Again, that's 858 858- Five four six four three zero six. But with that said, let's go back to the phones. Again, phone number here if you want to join in. We may have time for a few more callers. 833-288-0973. Again, that's 833-288-0973. But let's go out to San Diego and speak with Al, who's been waiting there patiently. Hey there, Al. You're on the Smart Investing Show. How can we help you this morning?
0: Hi there, uh, The stock is G-O-E-V. It's uh, an electric electrical car uh, stock and um, I hold it and it, it doubled from 2 to $4 this week.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I do know, I, I saw them in the news this past week, I believe they got a contract with Walmart to sell their vans. I believe that's who that was with. So they have been um, I guess more in the developmental phase. I don't think the company has any sales. Are, are you aware of the company's current standing there al or is they're just kind of building contracts
0: i'm not aware but no
1: okay well hey let's take a look as i said i, I did see in the news this week they, they did create that partnership with walmart that's why the stock did po- uh pop there hundred percent gain that's pretty phenomenal in just one week But let's take a look at the numbers here for again go ev uh is the ticker symbol so g-o-e-v company name is canoe i think they were actually created via a spac if i'm not mistaken but uh, short percentage of float wow this may be one reason why the stock did pop i see the short percent at 22 you may have had some shorts on cover here this pack past week institutional ownership just 36.6 percent that's quite low i see the valuation ratios this is what i was talking about i don't think the company any earnings any sales because there's no price to earnings multiple no price to sales multiple i think they're just in that phase where now they're trying to get contracts with their product and then maybe a year or two down the road they'll start to have sales so that is something that is quite concerning to me as it's i'm going to say very speculative looking at the the price of tangible book value though 4.7 that's below the industry average of 4.8 so they do have some some valuable assets i guess i'll call it on the balance sheet Looking at growth, there's nothing there, again, because no sales, no earnings, no dividend. Looking at the balance sheet, current ratio, 1.1. That's good. They have plain liquidity. And debt-to-equity is 0.1, so they're in a good spot. I I think they have enough capital to get them through, hopefully, that manufacturing phase. I would keep an eye on that debt-to-equity as the company does ramp, though. Looking at the current price for Canoe, it's four dollars and twenty-eight cents. Wow, I see the fifty-two-week high though, thirteen dollars and thirty-five cents. A huge decline from that level, especially looking at the fifty-two-week low of $1.75. dollar and seventy-five cents. So definitely had a lot of the excitement, I guess, dissipate over the last year, but that Walmart contract did did help them quite a bit this past week. I see year-to-date stock still down 44.6%, even with a doubling in the stock price in one week. That, that's quite crazy to me. I do see the market cap $1.1 billion. So it is, especially with the doubling of the, the company, not a huge company by any means. Again, just a, again a $1.1 billion market cap before the increase. It appears to be they were around about $500 million. If I go forward, though, for Canoe, I, I go out to December 2023. I see estimated earnings per share, unfortunately, a negative $1.47 can't derive a target sell price from that. Definitely what I call a growth story here, Al. Not a value company. It's very speculative as you're hoping that they're going to start to get more and more contracts with other companies and kind of build that business. It it could be something that's a great company 10, 15, 20 years down the road, or to be quite frank with you, could go out of business. All hinges on those potential contracts as there's no sales, no earnings, no financial statements to really break down at this point.
0: Okay. All right. Well, um, yeah, they they actually doubled in two days. They went up from two to to five dollars in two days, Wednesday <laughs> and Thursday.
1: Yes, yes, I, I did see that, and uh, you know, I'm I'm saying though, if their contracts or if the contract with Walmart doesn't increase the capacity that they thought it could, that could be a big negative for the stock. So it's increased over the last two days, which is great. I think a lot of that could uh, again be in the shorts uncovering. But it's definitely a very high-risk company, is what I would say about G O E V or Canoe. It's it's speculative. It it could go up another 100 percent, or it could go back down another 50 percent. It's it's a it's a it's a risk. I, I I'd put it at that point there, Al.
0: Well, I got August calls on it. Okay.
1: Well, we'll see what happens with the August calls there, and I you know I, I wish you well, and I, I hope that uh, it works out for you there. All righty. Well, hey, thanks for calling there, Allie. I appreciate it. I did see we, we did get another phone line there pop up. So uh, with that, let's go out to Escondido and let's speak with Richard. Hey there, Richard. You're on the Smart Investing Show. How can I help you this morning?
0: Hi, I'm looking at the uh, GSK.
1: Oh. All righty. I believe Yep, this is a drug manufacturing. You, you, you hold that currently <laughs> or are you looking to buy it?
3: Just looking at it.
1: All righty. Well, let's take a look here at GSK. Again, they're in the drug manufacturer industry. I uh, don't see anything on the short percentage of float. I see institutional ownership. That's strange. Just 13.5%. That's quite a low level for a company that I thought was quite large. Price to earnings 17.2, below the industry average of 21. I see price to sales also favorable at 2.4, as it's below the industry average of 4.1. Price to book value, 5.5, about the same as the industry average of 5.3. I see price to cash flow, 8.7. That's favorable compared to the industry average of 14.4. And turn to the growth rates. Earnings over the last one year, well, they're up 16.4%. Below the industry average of 23.2%. But that's still a pretty darn good growth rate. Sales over the last one year, well, they're up 10.9%, while the industry was up 14.6%. And going forward, the five-year estimated growth rate on earnings per share, 8.2%, better than the industry average of 46 I like to see that. Looking at the dividend for the company, nice dividend yield, 4.8%. The company uses 77.8% of their earnings to pay that out. A little concerning, especially with a drug company, I, I don't know if I would like to have a payout ratio that high because I generally like to see them invest more in research and development and kind of growing the business there hoping maybe that their earnings perhaps got hit with some accounting measures and their their true payout ratio isn't 77.8% that that's it's sustainable on the dividend but it worries me about the long-term viability of the, the company there Looking at the balance sheet for GSK, I do see the current ratio as well. That's 1.2, plenty of liquidity. Debt-to-equity is a little bit high at 210%. Industry is 280%, but I-, I normally get worried if debt-to-equity starts to exceed 120 140%. So 210, very, very high for, for a company. Looking at the profit margin, well, uh, that's 14%, below the industry average, 19.7%. Return on equity, well, that's 31.6%. And the return on investment capital is 11.9%. So overall, I'd say there's some good numbers here, but definitely some numbers that, that I, I'm questioning. Looking at the current price for GSK, $41.25. The 52 week high, well, that's $46.97. And the 52 week low, well, that's $37.80. Now, looking forward for GSK, I go out to December 2023. I see estimated earnings per share of $3.48. That would give me a target sell price of fifty-seven dollars and seventy-seven cents. That is above the current price of forty-one twenty-five. So there is value there, but as kind of said, there are some numbers that I would definitely want to dive a little bit deeper into. Uh, in particular, would be that payout ratio and also to that debt to equity uh, definitely a little bit high there.
0: All right, thank you very much.
1: All right, no worries there, Richard. Thanks for calling. All right. Well, let's see. We're approaching the end of the show here. I do believe we have time for one more call. I did want to mention real quick, though, we do have our Smart Investing Workshop coming up this next Thursday. Again, that's going to be, let's see, I believe that's the 23rd. It's, it's, oh No, excuse me. It's July 21st. That'll be at 6 p.m. in our office in the Scripps Ranch. And what we're going to talk about there is you know, you need an investment plan during difficult time periods like this, and, and that's what our firm has. Is we want to make sure we're not worried about all this volatility, and we want to stick to our investing plan. you want to learn what our investing plan is, join us at that workshop. Just register at smartinvesting2000.com. Again, that's smartinvesting2000.com, and we'll get you all signed up. It'll be the last one for a few months there, so time is ticking to to attend one of those Smart Investing workshops. With that, let's go out quickly to Michael in Chula Vista. Hey there, Michael. You're on the Smart Investing Show. How can I help you this morning?
0: Good morning. I'm calling about another REIT, Highwoods Properties, symbol H-I-W
1: alrighty Highwood properties and I do believe they're in the office space which I think long term you're gonna see more people go back to the office that that's my personal opinion but uh, I guess we'll see what happens with uh, the economy and how it progresses with the work from home trend but uh, let's take a look again at Highwood properties they are again in that office space I do see that the current valuations: the price-to-earnings multiple of 11.9, below the industry average of 19.9. Price-to-sales of 4.6, also below the industry average of 6.2. See price-to-book value at 1.5, above the industry average of 0.4. That's a strange number, but uh, price-to-book value 1.5. I think that's a pretty darn attractive rate. Price-to-cash flow 8.9, below the industry average of 13.5. I see earnings over the last one year well up 25.1%. Again, I believe that could be from selling a, a property. Sales over the last one year though up 8.3%, and also too looking at the dividend here 5.9%. Very attractive yield for this business. Looking at the balance sheet current ratio just 0.2. And debt to equity at 1.1% or 110%. We want to understand why that company just does not have very much liquidity. That is quite strange. Uh, One one area that is definitely a note of caution. Looking at the margin, 37.8% above the industry average, 32.4%. Return on equity at 12%. Better than the industry average, 6.1, and return on investment capital, 7.3, also better than the industry average, 3.8. I see the current price here for Highwood is $33.72. 52 week high, $48.82. Definitely pulled back off those levels, and a lot closer to the 52 week low of $32.62. I see year to date stock has definitely struggled at a negative 22.5% uh, performance there to start 2022. If I go to December 2023, though, to look at the FFO or again the fund from operations, I see that's three dollars and ninety-eight cents. That would give us a target sell price of sixty-eight or excuse me, sixty-six dollars and seven cents. So a huge potential gain there from the current level of thirty-three seventy-two. I like the valuation for this this business here uh, for Highwood Properties, Michael.
0: Thank you, I appreciate that. And I had a quick question about REITs in general, yeah. as far as a portfolio balance, say you have four different REITs, different types, office REIT, maybe a gaming REIT, mm-hmm. a healthcare REIT, and you had 6% of each of those companies, are you comfortable with that or do you consider that uh, maybe 25% uh, invested in real estate a little bit too much?
1: You know, I, I'm not going to say yes or no necessarily on that. I'd say it depends on the environment. If REITs do look really attractive, a, a 24% allocation, I, I don't think is too aggressive because, as you said, there are different types of REITs. It's not like you're buying, if you had four office REITs, I'd say, yeah, that, that, that's definitely over-allocated to it. But right now, I think there are so many great opportunities. I'll tell you, we have two different REITs in our portfolio. We've talked about maybe adding a third or ah, maybe down the road to be something, but I don't think it's necessarily too high of an allocation, especially if you keep them in, in the different sectors there.
0: Okay, great. I appreciate that and uh, you have a great weekend.
1: All right. Thank you so much. You too, Michael. All right. Well, that does pretty much wrap up the show there. Uh, again, I did want to just throw a quick plug. We do have our workshop again coming up this Thursday. That's going to be again July 21st at 6 p.m. at our offices in Scripps Ranch and we're talking about why it is so important to have that investment plan during these these difficult time periods. You know, your money is hard-earned and it is important. You want to make sure that you're investing it properly to set yourself up for retirement or also to last you through retirement. You can want to join us for that workshop. Go to smartinvesting2000.com or you can call us at the office and ask for Priscilla. Give us a call at 858-546-4306. Again, that's 858 546 4306. And as I said, it is going to be our last one for a few months. So you want to go ahead and get registered there. Join us for that workshop, especially during these volatile times. It is so important to, to make sure you do have that, that strong investment plan. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> We'll wind it down here, so I did want to thank Harrison for, for joining us this week. It was a, a treat having you in studio here. Uh, I, I'm not sure if you're going anywhere next week, but I guess we'll uh, time one tell.
2: <laughs> Usually, I figure that out just a few days before, so we will see. I don't think I'm doing anything next weekend, so I should be in San Diego. <laughs> oh, very good. Well, all right. Thank you for listening. Oh, me off there with
1: a closing bell, but thank you for listening to The Smart Investing Show. It is for informational purposes only and should not be used as investment advice. If you would like to discuss in more detail your investment needs or have other investment questions, feel free to call myself, Chase Wilsey, or also Brent Wilsey at 858-546-4306. Again, 858-546-4306. Please visit our website, smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. And for more daily educational information along with investment tips, go to our Facebook group, Smart Investing with Brent and Chase
3: Wilsey I did all that and may I say